On this episode, I'm in conversation with Professor Jason Leach. Welcome to the QI Guy in Conversation with podcast. I'm your host and personal improvement advisor, Jonathan O'Reilly. Thank you for joining me for the 10th and final episode of this first season of the QI Guy in Conversation with podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have when I started this podcast back in in April um, 2021. Um, I wasn't quite sure if people were going to like it, if they were going to listen to it, how they were going to interact with it. And um, I've had fun. I've I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed connecting and having conversations with, you know, these fantastic um, 10 guests that I've been privileged um, to, to, to get some of their time and to, to get some of their knowledge. I've had some nice feedback um, on on Twitter at the QI underscore guy. Um, so yeah, that's that's I suppose that's kind of made some of it feel worthwhile. But I'm going to take a wee break um, over the next couple of months um, and I'm Go to work and get some some new guests and some good guests for for our second um, season. But don't worry, we've got a couple of bonus episodes that are going to drop between now and the end of the year, just to kind of tide you over. And I think they're going to be um, well worth the wait. We don't want to keep them till a second season. Believe you me. Today I'm. Honoured, I suppose, would be would be the the the, the phrase um, to be joined by Professor Jason Leach. Uh, Jason is the National Clinical Director um, and the Clinical Quality Unit at the Scottish Government. So he's the National Clinical Director here for the for the NHS in Scotland. And and Jason, as you'll hear, was a, a kind of early champion of quality improvement methods within um, healthcare here in Scotland. It was one of the senior team who conceived, designed and led the early rollout of the Scottish Patient Safety Programme uh, here in Scotland as well. And, and we cover all of those things and even more in our conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jason Leach. So guys, welcome back to the podcast and I am delighted and privileged to be joined by Professor Jason Leach. How are you, sir? I'm very well. How are you? It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, t- took a punt, as they say, up in Scotland on Twitter, sent you a, a DM expecting um, not to hear much back. And I think within a few days we had this, this call arranged. So I'm very thankful because I'm sure you've got a couple of other plates spinning at the minute. Any opportunity, any opportunity not to talk about COVID, Jonathan. So it, it's a uh, you 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 grab my attention with something quality improvement related. We we might talk about uh, we may talk about the pandemic and later course. on. Um, but but let's 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 jump in and, and talk about uh, quality improvement and and particular as well the Scottish Patient Safety Program that you you were key in. So Jason, how did you first encounter quality? improvement what were you what were you doing when when did you first kind of brush up against this this approach that we're using well i i think there's quite a lot of myth about quality improvement i think i knew what it was before i understood the language 
I think if you go way back and study the clinical method or the scientific method of how many of us were trained, whether we're physiotherapists or dentists like me or or other professions, we, we were always taught to constantly improve the way we're working, watch other people's leadership, watch other people. I mean, I would I learned to operate by watching other people operate mm-hmm. and, and learning how to do that in a kind of what I would now call a small test of change type way, an iterative challenge. I only understood to codify that, to call it something. When I went to the States, I was bored as a clinical academic in uh, the <laughs> dental school and the West of Scotland hospitals. I was a surgeon. I had done a doctorate. I was running a piece of the curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. And I stumbled across a health foundation funded fellowship to Boston. And it was to what I now know as the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I, I had no clue what IHI was. I was looking for a year off. And Lynn, <laughs> Lynn, who's my wife, she's a teacher, and she and I filled in the form over the weekend. She still says the grammar and the spelling was awful, and she doesn't know how I got it. And we got it. I was successful. I was the first dentist to apply and the first Scot to apply. So I think I ticked a number of diversity boxes for them. Mm-hmm. And that's why they took me. And I went with three Englishmen and uh, two Americans. And we formed this group of six fellows in 2005, six. And that's where I learned quality improvement. Formal training at the Harvard School of Public Health, a little. It's some formal training at IHI. And then lots and lots of informal training, working with Don Bellick, with Maureen Bissignano, with the IHI improvement teams who were in the field. So the first time I saw it in real life was in Denver, Colorado, where they were running a collaborative to help with oral health, which was an obvious place to put me. Mm-hmm. I, so so that's where I'd begun to learn that there was something scientific about this method. There was something about aims, measures, and changes. There was something about will and ideas and execution. And that's where I began to be able to talk about it a little bit more intelligently. Yeah, and, and, and you obviously went on to become a, an, IHI, an IHI fellow, and you're now a senior fellow um, at the IHI. Um, I'm sure that comes with its own burdens. You get that for long service, not for anything you've actually oh, done. Oh, right, so, okay. So not quite, not quite. So, <laughs> so the fellowship program, which was the year-long funded escapade, was was the formal kind of deep dive. And then IHI has always had senior fellows. It's always had people who have been part of this global network of improvers. So a few years ago, very privileged to be asked to join that senior fellows cohort. That's full of some very, very interesting people, much more interesting than me, who you would who you would love to interview on here. People who have uh, done massive work uh, across the world, the former Mexican health minister, Paul Batalden, who's the father of much of this thinking. Don yeah. Berwick is now a senior fellow. Maureen Bissignano is a senior fellow. The people who run Kaiser's Quality Improvement Programme. There's a big, long, long list. And then there's a wee fella from Airdrie who, uh, <laughs> who, ha- who happened to land in Boston a long time ago. So uh, having done that and spent spent that year in the States, you end up coming, coming back to Scotland and you very much kind of championed um, quality improvement within, within Scotland and across Scotland. You know, I, I mean... Uh, how did you get involved in, in kind of that national work, that government work when you when you come back to Scotland? What was your vision and what did you want 
what did you want people to do when you were talking to them about this QI stuff and this thing you'd learned in IHI? Yeah, it looks much more uh, linear when you look back and try and explain it. It's not linear at the time, of course. The the stars kind of aligned in 2006-7. A number of things happened briefly. So I, I came back from the States having had this wonderful life-changing experience. I, I use those words uh, advisedly, tr- genuinely life-changing. Uh, and Derek Feely, who was subsequently to become the chief executive of the National Health Service, he and I had met in the States because he'd been doing a Harkness Fellowship mm-hmm. and the wives had become pals, both called Lynn. So we were forced to spend time together, the two of us. <laughs> we're still not entirely sure if we like each other. But we, we, uh, we became pals. Uh, the... SNP government was elected in 2007, and Nicola Sturgeon, now the first minister of the country, became the health secretary. And the veil of leaving had happened. So the veil of leaving was an infection control challenge where a number of people had died of C. difficile in a hospital. And everybody knew that we needed to do something about that. And Patient safety in Scotland had a long history. We had lots of work, but we hadn't had this really focused quality improvement driven approach from the centre, but locally led to to try and fix that. And that from that, long story short, the Scottish Patient Safety Programme was born. A coalition of government, IHI, who we brought to the table, who were very keen to have a national version of what they had done. They they didn't have a country that they had tried to do this work in. And one of their senior vice presidents came to live in Scotland for five years. Carol Harridan, who, who many listening might remember, Carol came to live here and lived in London and then lived in Edinburgh. Derek Feely was the head of policy and I was brought into the government as the national clinical lead for patient safety. Part-time, still kept my clinical job part-time. And we, we basically worked out a menu and recipe of what we thought the priorities for patient safety should be based on an international review of the literature from IHI. So central line infection bundles from intensive care, medicines reconciliation and pharmacy, surgical checklists and operating theatres, big list. I think something like 40 different interventions. Mm. And we got government to engage. We got Nicola Sturgeon, to her great credit, to say, okay, let's do this. And she stood up in Parliament and said, more people are harmed by the care they receive than than we should be harming. And we're going to fix that. And here's the logo and here's the SPSP. Now, the only danger of your health minister doing that, of course, is after you've persuaded her to do it, is you better bloom and deliver it. (laughs) Because she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't like you to overpromise and underdeliver. So that that then became what the next decade of our lives to try and to try and deliver what we had promised. Uh, and SPSP is often described, I think, rightly so, as the kind of first example of that kind of countrywide initiative. Obviously, the, the work that IHI were doing in America, North America, it's, it's a huge country. So we had this this program in two thousand eight across. The whole of, of of Scotland. I mean, when you set out, what did what did you hope in your wildest dreams that it that it would achieve? Um, was it just about getting some bundles in place, maybe introducing QI to some people, or did you think back then in two thousand and eight that we would be where we are now, where where it's kind of almost seen as a kind of world leading program in many respects? 
Well, I, I don't think we lacked ambition. I think probably if you'd sat us down at that point, there was a group of us, remember, there was a there was a set of leaders, all with relatively big personalities. It wasn't the easiest group to to lead or be part of. Uh, and you sometimes you in these in these real innovative programs, that's inevitable. I think we would have probably said we think we can reduce infections in Scottish mm-hmm. hospital. We think we can get to a point where things like the surgical checklist are helping with surgical mortality. But I don't think we would have believed in reality that we would have been able to reduce all-cause hospital mortality by 18 19% and save mm-hmm. what became, arguably, because the stats are quite difficult, 20,000 lives across, across that period. And I would never have uh, said that we would create a legacy of quality improvement, education and mission on an ongoing basis. I, d- I don't think any of us would have believed that the method would actually become the outcome. So SPSP, of course, led to fewer C. difficile infections, less surgical mortality, better pharmacy, distrib- all that. It definitely mm-hmm. did that. But then it also leads directly to the Scottish Improvement Leaders Programme, to the Scottish Patient Safety Programme Fellowship Programme, as was at the time, now the Scottish Quality Fellowship, and all of the work that those other things have led. So so you you meet a fellow, and a fellow has designed NHS Near Me, which is Scotland's video conferencing programme for appointments, which during COVID becomes a crucial aspect of our response to COVID because we can't see people in person. So we have a ready-made video conferencing process for appointments. Turns out, designed in a quality improvement type way by a fellow from the Scottish Patient Safety Programme. We even have a Scottish Patient Safety Programme pharmacist as our new public health minister. So, So there are tentacles. We're now, what, 16 years on, 15 years on? There are now tentacles of that initial work in all elements of the health and social care system. That we couldn't have imagined. Yeah, as they say, the largest tree grows from a, a single seed. Um, and that's interesting that you'd kind of said that because I never quite thought about that. NHS near me has been one of the, certainly the big innovations in the Scottish healthcare system over the last kind of year and a half. And tracing tracing its roots all the way back to, to SPSP is, is interesting. And you're right, you know, the, the reductions in hospital mortality, but we've also seen reductions in things like cardiac arrests, patients who are having falls in hospital, falls with harm, all, all, all these types of things. Um, do you feel that the programme achieved that, maybe that initial objective that, that, that you guys had when you were collaborating around reducing infections because the veil of leaven i worked in glasgow uh, and clyde's nhs board um, at the time and the veil of leaven was um you know a, a a hot topic it was it was a hot topic not always only within glasgow but across scotland do you think that that's perhaps uh, that changed attitudes towards uh, infection prevention and control within scotland i think it's one of the things that did that I think it's multifactorial. Uh, Scotland has now been on a 12-year journey of having some of the best infection numbers, if you'll forgive the shorthand, in the world. Now, we started pretty badly. So if you want to show improvement, choose something you're not so great at (laughs) and then put that on your statistical process control chart. But we've now got global leading 
in the pack infection numbers. Now, COVID has messed all that up, has, has changed that, changed that uh, metric a little bit because of the nature of what we've done and responded to. So a lot of that infection has gone away because of what we've done with COVID. But before, pre, pre-pandemic, we were on a, still on a downward trajectory. It, it's, t- it's tough. It's particularly tough in the tail of those mm-hmm. few cases that you've still got left. But compared to other countries, we've, we've done a pretty good job. The other, just as you were asking that question, the other thing it's important to remember about that initial decade of quality improvement is we didn't just stop stuff, mm-hmm. stop harm. We also introduced compassion or it, it made compassion more likely. So the What Matters to You program, the use of care opinion, the the elements of quality improvement that that were additional to what we were doing, rather than just stopping people being harmed, I think were really important. The positive side of that quality improvement was also very, very important. And of course, yeah, building on the Scottish patient safety work that started in the late 2000s, we then had the development of a kind of national quality strategy around delivering safe, effective and person-centred care, so it was a kind of more a more rounded approach. What's interesting is, uh, and obviously I work within this, the, the, the Scottish healthcare system, is we've never revisited that national strategy really in a meaningful way. Is that because we kind of got it right back in 2010, 2012 when it was, was, was produced? Or is the feeling that actually the system now, the different NHS health boards in Scotland are off doing their own thing at pace and are moving in the right direction so we don't need to tamper? It's a good, it's a good question. So the so this quality strategy, the national quality strategy, we would argue the first in the world at a country level in 2010 does still stand the test of time. It does express still safe, effective, person-centred care, globally leading, here's what we'll do, etc. But 11 years later, should you modernise that? Should you make it, should you rethink it? I, I am, I'm a bit of a sceptic about strategy documents unless you've got something that you really need it to do for you. The government, All governments are very tempted by strategic documents. Mm -hmm. Uh, The First Minister will quite often say to me and to others, honestly, please don't bring me another strategy. (laughs) I'd much rather have something that's got actions connected to it. And there is a driver diagram in that quality strategy. The centre pages of that quality strategy were the first internationally published government-level driver diagram. So we're quite -hmm. quite proud of that. I, I think that leadership... In Scottish context, this doesn't apply everywhere. In a Scottish context, I think government leadership is crucial and then local delivery and adaptation for the Western Isles, for Dumfries, for Glasgow become then really important. But I think it's worthy of discussion whether we should revisit it. We've tried to incorporate quality improvement into all the subsequent publications and strategies. So we had a just a few years ago, we had a national clinical strategy, which was on behalf of the chief medical officer, the chief nurse, and I, just at the start of the last election. And that talked about realistic medicine, but it also talked about quality improvement, talked about moving care into the community, but also doing it in a measured way with iterative change. So we've tried to use the method and incorporate it into the mainstream rather than have this tag-along quality thing that that is separate somehow, that's somehow a specialist facility. I'm reminded of a 
of a tour I did with Don Berwick once in a in a Kaiser hospital in Cal I think in California. And there was the 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 patient safety there was an office that said this is the patient safety office, but it was closed. It was blocked <laughs> off. And uh, I, I was being shown round by one of the quality leaders of Kaiser. I said, what's happening here? And, you've, and she said, no, no, we started needing a patient safety office. Now we don't need a patient safety office. Mm, now, patient safety, now patient safety is everywhere and everybody's job. Initially, we needed, we needed it driven. We needed somebody whose job it was. Now we revisit it all the time, but we don't have a special place where you go to do patient safety. It's interesting that I, I, I would see that. Um, reflected in some of um, the NHS in, in, in Scotland, where we perhaps started out with patient safety teams, patient safety uh, improvement advisors, but we're kind of now transitioned to more quality improvement and, and looking at those different aspects of, of quality, not just safety. So you're talking about the tentacles of SPSP and the quality improvement method. QI is now kind of um, taking a life of its own as an approach, as a kind of mindset beyond healthcare in Scotland and it started to kind of spread into other areas of of public uh, service, social care, prisons, police, education. Uh, what kind of role are you playing in terms of promoting that within within those different organisations and, and, and what do you see um, QI doing for those different organisations? Yeah, we, we ended, we first of all made a mistake. So from SPSP, we moved to person-centred care, trying to apply the same formula that we'd applied to safety to a, a much harder to evidence set of interventions. And to tell you the truth, it didn't work. So we learned a lot by the success of SPSP and the lack of success in a, using the same formula in a, in a world that didn't lend itself to that necessarily rigid evidence-based approach. The next attempt was early years, education, criminal justice, but based around kids. And the director of children and families in the Scottish government came to Derek and I and said, I've got an implementation problem. I, I know what needs to happen, but I don't know how to implement. And we had an implementation solution. Mm -hmm. We didn't know the content. So we began the early years collaborative. What has now become the Children and Young People's Improvement Collaborative. And it was astonishing. It was hard to get your head around because it was so big, because we had midwives doing a kind of welfare forms for pregnant women. We had schools doing the Daily Mile and trying to do physical exercise for primary kids. So, so the, the, it was hugely diverse. But we did the same as we'd done in SPSP. We taught quality improvement methods. We taught data. We used examples from each of their areas. We brought them all together in a big learning community. And it, it really captured people's imagination. People loved it. I went to primary schools all over the country where they had data on the walls and truancy numbers falling and behavior improving and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. the, our challenge was it grew arms and legs awfully quickly. <laughs> and and we found it hard to contain. So we ended up doing a capacity building. So we ran the Scottish Improvement Leaders Programme, or what's become the Scottish Improvement Leaders Programme, where we created educational experiences over nine months for people to dip in and out of and come for residential weeks. And then they were allowed to do projects of, of their own. And we created 
I, I can't actually remember what we called them, but they were kind of specialised groups that would do, so we're going to do literacy, or we're going to do health and well-being of kids, or we're going to do a criminal justice thing. So we ran dad's parenting classes in prisons. That it seems a long way from primary kids running a mile around their school, but it was mm -hmm. all connected to improving the life chances for children. And it's still going. Still mm -hmm. got a group of a dozen improvement advisors. It's got regional collaboratives. It's got a leader who probably our fourth senior leader running it. It's absolutely terrific. And it remains too big with arms and legs everywhere and a bit uncontrolled, <laughs> but it's absolutely terrific. And then the, the other thing that's happened is people have come and asked for improvement support. So mm -hmm. what does quality improvement mean in the court service? Or what does it mean in Scottish canals or some, some other piece of the, of the puzzle, public or private sector? And we've set up a kind of consultancy arm in the Scottish government called the Leading Improvement Team who work with me and we've spent a lot of time in, in odd parts of the puzzle doing some improvement inside the Scottish government. So processes around uh, correspondence re response or inside the court system or inside the child protection system using quality improvement methods to try and drive improvement and change. It's fantastic. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, that that wide and varied range of the application of that, the methods and tools, I think it, it, it really shows that, you know, no, no problems too small, no problems too big, a nice headache to have with uh, things growing arms and legs, because it shows, it shows keenness, it shows will, it shows folk want to get, to get involved. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that, that's excellent. So I would probably be remiss in my duties if I didn't ask you something about the, the pandemic. I don't want you to, to necessarily give me chapter and verse because our listeners can can go and have a look at the latest QI Connect. I think you did earlier in the we year did. where you spoke specifically about um, QI's role and, and leadership of the pandemic. But particularly as we're, we're kind of we're moving out of a, a third wave. And as we're recording this, certainly here in Scotland and the UK, we've just started to see society really kind of open back up. What what role do you think QI is going to play in the recovery, particularly within the, the health services? What do you think the big challenges are um, and, and perhaps the things we should be thinking about QI as sitting as a bit of a centrepiece of how we might tackle it? It goes back to what you asked at the beginning and, and what, what do you consider in this bucket of quality improvement? So it, I would put inside that a pretty broad definition. So if, if you put compassion and person-centred care inside that bucket, then that's everything. That's, that's, I mean, people are grieving for loss. People have struggled with their own well-being inside health and social care, but also in supermarket checkouts and Uber drivers, and I mean, there isn't a single piece of society that this pandemic hasn't touched, sometimes horribly, and, and sometimes a, a more mixed response. But every family has had some element of care home challenge or family economic challenge. So uh, as we come out of that, we have, to, we have to engage with people, families, whether they're grieving families or economic hardship, whatever. And quality improvement can help us do that because it can help us focus on those we serve, and then there's the much more technical quality improvement response to say, if you're going to restart stroke services, what, what are you going to do? How much are you going to do online? How much are you going to do in person? What's your count? What, what are you going to count to make sure that's working, et cetera, et cetera. And everywhere you look, 
the quality improvement advocates are already doing that. There's driver diagrams on recovery. There's data sets for what are we doing in intensive care or in EDs or in community practices. So, so I think quality improvement is up the centre of that. And even if we we stopped doing the formal training and we all disappeared, that would be maintained. And we've also then got to use quality improvement and we've got to restart some of the things we've lost, like mm -hmm. the Scottish Improvement Leaders Programme has moved online. So what do we do with that face-to-face? -face? What do we do with our global network? One of the strengths of Scotland has been in that global network of high-performing systems and IHI's convening of them. We need to restart some of that to make sure we're not missing learning and to make sure we're sharing with others. So I think there's multiple layers where quality improvement has to help us in the round with that recovery. Fantastic. I to totally agree uh, with everything you said there, Jason. Um, so thinking about uh, somebody who might be listening to this, perhaps they're a so-called expert in QI, or maybe somebody's listening to this and, and they're just starting that QI journey. What's, what's your top tips um, for somebody that's that's starting out and whether a quality improvement or kind of change journey um, within healthcare or, or indeed any kind of public organisation? What do you what do you think is going to maximise the impact, the learning that, that, that they can get? That's a great question. Uh, Lynn, my wife, gives me into trouble because every time I'm at the podium with the First Minister and a journalist asks me a question, apparently I say, well, there's two things. Well, there's three things, and, I, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say there's two things. I think I've, I've got two things that I've learned that I've done wrongly, and actually COVID has helped me relearn them. And and the the first is go to where the work is. So that that work has changed for me. So I've I've had to go to the buses and the trains and the hospitality sector and the soft play sector. So I've had to help with advice around areas that I never thought I'd be helping with ever. I mean, I've, I've had to think about what are we going to do to make nightclubs safe or what are we going to do to make the hospitality sector or places of worship safe. So you have to go to where the work is to understand it. And I and colleagues have had to spend a lot of time trying to understand what it, what it is to be a customer service agent in ASDA mm -hmm. or, or wherever. It, and, this, and the second is about actual capacity building. The second is... you. QI is instinctive, but is better when you have the toolkit. So if you have a toolkit that says, yes, data over time is going to be better than two data points, mm -hmm. something as simple as that, or using can, kind of patient-centered design so that you can think about it from a patient's perspective or a carer's perspective or whoever allows you to do that. So that toolkit is available. You can You can learn it, just like you can learn cardiology or learn communication skills. You can learn the QI toolkit. So wherever, whatever country you're in, wherever you are, there are, there are available uh, exercise. There is, there is education available to you in whatever form. In Scotland, that's the Improvement Leaders Programme, the Fellowship Programme. The IHI has the Open School. There's lots of versions all over the world about what that looks like. So, so go to where the work is and learn. Actual, actually do development or, on your own. With a group that allows you to allows you to learn what that toolkit might look like. Uh, those are fantastic tips, and I can I can personally say um, from doing those things myself, 
going with the workers and, and, and taking opportunities like being on, on, on the skill programme and, and learning from others um, uh, has a huge impact, a massive, a massive impact in your learning. So Jason, thank you for your time today um, and, and thank you for all your, your efforts in public health um, over the last uh, year and a half as well. Um, my my stock went up uh, when my mum and dad were saying, oh, that's that Professor Leach on there with the First Minister. And I would say, oh, I, I knew Jason. I've sat in the same committee room as Jason in Gill Square in Edinburgh um, and I got, I got some admiring looks for a wee while. Um, so thank you for taking the time to have a chat with me today. You're kind. Thank you very much for having me. Your your parents fit into a demographic, the, the, the demographic that likes me. It's not it's not it's not universal. You just have to look at my social media to find it may not always be like that. But I'm I'm very grateful for you having me. Thank you. Thank you to Jason for a fantastic conversation. Um, those of you who know Jason or know of Jason will know that he's a fantastic um, communicator and, and as you hear there, a big proponent of QI methodology and its application not only in healthcare but in wider public services and we're really appreciative here on the podcast of Jason taking the time out of responding to um, a pandemic. Um, very much Jason is the, the face and the voice um, of that pandemic response up here in Scotland. He's all over the, the telly and the radio, as it were. So thank you once again. And I suppose thank you to all of my guests um, that I've had on the show over the last, well, six six months. So Leslie-Anne, Laura, uh, Jennifer, Paul, Sam, the guys at the Flow Coaching Academy, Tom and Steve. Um, a huge thank you to Heather uh, and Nikki, to Athenia, uh, Mushtag uh, for coming on and of course Jason and I couldn't do all this without you guys this wouldn't be worth doing um, if people weren't listening into the podcast um, and and hopefully getting something out of it and I, and I hope that you have uh, I genuinely mean that other than that it's just me having some interesting conversations with people um, and and recording them <laughs> recording them for for my own use. I know that my mum listens, so uh, thank you, mum, for that. Um, we'll be back um, early in the new year with a, a second season, um, and as I'd mentioned, we're going to have a couple of bonus episodes dropping between now and the end of the year. So please look out for them. Look out for more details about um, more QI meetups. Um, we're hoping to have another one again before the end of the year, and we're hoping very much that that, that QI meetup continues into 2022. So as always, thank you for listening to the episode. Be sure to follow us on social media. Um, our Twitter account is at the QI underscore guy. And please subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a, a review, a five-star rating if you have the facility to do so. Um, I'm told it helps. And until next time, please take care. Mm-hmm.